message is that like, it's valid and everything you feel is valid. Hi, welcome back to Everything But The Ball. I'm Kelly Birchfield. I'm Katie McNulty. And I'm Jenna Case. And today we're here with Emily Perrin, former University of Virginia Division I soccer player and CEO and founder of Perrin Wellness and Performance. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh my gosh. Thank you guys for having me and doing what you're doing. I'm, um, I'm honored to be on and talk with you guys. Yeah, we're so excited to get started. So can you just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself career-wise and how you got into uh, your line of work? I, I obviously played um, soccer in college, but it, my journey really begins um, much earlier than that. Um, so my father is, um, has a PhD in sports psychology um, and spent uh, the first uh, 10 years of my life, he, he coached for about 15 years, um, but uh, coaching at the University of Virginia. He was an assistant basketball coach. And, um, you know, really my earliest childhood memories were um, college sport. Um, you know, I, I grew up in and around um, college athletics and um, understanding what it meant to be an athlete and be a coach and be a part of a team. Um, and, you know, obviously as I kind of grew up and got older and got into competitive sport, um, you know, my, my dad played a pretty transformational role in, uh, my career and then, um, you know, played four years in college and then knew, um, kind of based on that, that I really wanted to get into coaching, um, specifically at the collegiate level. Um, I did a lot at the youth game as well, um, you know, in and around my, my coaching years at Penn. But um, yeah, so spent um, a few years coaching collegiately at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I was an assistant there in the Ivy League um, and ironically um, found very quickly that um, very little of what I loved was the soccer. Um, you know, I'll, I'll always love the sport. Um, you know, it, it was, you know, my entire life for a very long time. Um, love to watch, don't play anymore. Um, you know, but what I really enjoyed was working with young women um, and helping them, you know, learn how to be not just the best soccer players they could be, but the best people they could be. Um, you know, when you're coaching at the collegiate level, you're coaching at um, a very transformational um, time period for, for athletes. Um, and so you're a very large piece of, um, you know, who they become. And um, for me, that was so... Um, that was so impactful. Um, and I knew that, um, what I really wanted to be doing was much more off the field. Um, and so kind of made a, um, career pivot, um, after my third year coaching. Um, and at the same time had, um, some pretty significant health issues going on. Um, I was struggling physically. I had really injured myself. Um, and that is from just poorly taking care of myself and jumping in to play with, uh, the girls without warming up or cooling down. And so I had torn my hip labrum, um, and needed, um, a pretty, pretty big hip surgery, 
Um, and at the same time was just having a lot of um, mental health stuff going on. Um, you know, I've always kind of, and am very open about my own mental health journey, um, dealt with a lot of anxiety, um, panic attacks, um, bouts, of, bouts of depression. Um, and uh, yeah, just kind of all at once uh, kind of got hit both physically and mentally. And um, yeah, just made a, a complete kind of uh, transformation in my own life. And part of that was, um, you know, this journey to, I think, heal both physically and mentally. Um, and from that came, um, you know, a journey that I really realized so many of us can use and specifically so many athletes can use. Um, and so about, uh, coming up on two years ago, I launched my, my business. Um, and yeah, I really kind of now it's my life's work to, um, help athletes, um, in kind of a, a more holistic approach, looking at the human athlete, doing a lot of mindfulness, meditation, yoga, breath work. Um, I'm also in a full-time grad student, um, as well. So I'm getting my, uh, master's in clinical social work. Um, so, uh, you know, right up the, the mental health alley, um, so yeah, that's kind of, you know, where I am today and trying to navigate all that and navigate COVID and, um, you know, the, like the rest of the world. Right. I think everybody's doing that, but, um, yeah, that's kind of a, a snapshot of, uh, me. That's awesome. And you mentioned pretty early on in our conversation just now. And also one of the first things, um, that's in your bio on your website is your relationship with your father and watching him coach what kind of influences he had on your philosophy today? It's funny. You can even see in this video, right? These like big, like I'm a very big visual person. Like when I do programming and kind of information, I do usually an info digest on these big notepads. And I actually got that from him, which I always kind of laugh. Um, he's the one that kind of, um, you know, growing up, he always had these things all over the walls of his office. And so when I started to get into this work, I was like, huh, actually, that's a really good idea. Um, so, uh, yeah, he, um, you know, obviously I think what he opened my eyes to was, um, you know, this whole other aspect of competitive sport, which is really, um, kind of an afterthought for most people, right? This kind of mental um, and emotional side of things. Um, you know, I think we're getting better. I think our, our, our athletic community as a whole is, we're, we're trending in the right direction in that we're putting more and more attention on the mental and emotional piece, but we're not there yet. Um, you know, what most people, and I'll be honest, most of the world kind of, you know, really looks at and puts a spotlight on is, is the, the physical piece of things. And, and when I say physical, it's that also includes kind of like the tactical and the technical pieces of your sport, right? Um, the things we can see, right? Um, and the mental and emotional piece we can't see. Um, and so, you know, the first thing that my dad really gave me was, um, you know, simply an open door to this whole nother world. Um, and, you know, this idea that, hey, this is a really big piece of the equation. Um, it's a profession. Um, it's a career. Um, and, you know, he also does a lot of work in the um, corporate and kind of um, exec level um, in, in, you know, day-to-day -day world. Um, and so, you know, in that light, he's, he's also allowed me to see that, you know, a lot of this stuff is transferable to people that aren't athletes. Um, you know, to some degree, in a lot of my 
business is um, around this idea of performance, which is, um, you know, performance is, uh, we all have to perform, right, as humans. Um, you know, stay-at-home moms perform every day, right? Their role is to be a mother and to take care of other human beings. That's performance. Um, you know, uh, the best athletes in the world have to perform. Um, you know, people that work on Wall Street, you know, they're, they're performing every day. It's just a different, um, it's just a different entity, right? Swap mm -hmm. out whatever it is we're doing, but we're performing. And so, you know, where my kind of, uh, you know, I guess my view is that, look, it doesn't really matter what you're performing at. A lot of these practices and how I work with people really apply to anything and everything. Um, you know, I just choose to, um, you know, kind of by default, uh, spend a lot of my time working with athletes. Um, you know, I think the other thing that I, I really kind of give my dad credit, uh, is this kind of, um, you know, he is someone that is constantly, um, and, and I think it's his personality who he is, but it's also his profession. And I think what he's seen as he started to work with, uh, you know, athletes and his years of coaching, this idea of just constant, um, you know, self evolution, growth, um, insight, awareness, right. For ourselves, honestly, he's the one that kind of started me on this path to self-discovery. Um, and a lot of these practices, you know, there's not anything that I do in my business that I haven't done myself. Um, you know, it, and, and that really honestly starts from him. Um, you know, he is someone that is constantly reading, researching, finding new things, um, you know, looking into new things, trying new things with his players. And, and really what that gets at is just this, this constant journey to learn, right. And to grow and to evolve as human beings and to adapt and to be flexible. And, you know, so I think that is something that, um, you know, is very much a part of who I am and a part of my business and, um, how I got to, you know, creating my business, I definitely give him uh, the majority of the credit for that. Yeah, no, I mean, your passion is evident, not only in the way you're speaking to us now and on your social media, but on your website and everything, what you do is really incredible. Um, and it's very evident as well that you're passionate about helping people from all walks of life. I think you even mentioned that specifically on your website to be the best that they can be other than your father. Where did this passion come from to really be uh, accessible to everyone? Honestly, I, I think it came from, uh, you know, probably my, my, the darkest moments of my life, right? I mean, um, you know, anybody who's struggled with mental health um, issues, and I think specifically um, panic and, and kind of chronic anxiety, um, and you hit rock bottom, um, which is, you know, to me, rock bottom was um, landing myself in, in, in patient psychiatric care, um, at the age of 28, um, you know, you, you kind of have this epiphany that like, holy hell, I, I don't want anyone to, to, to go there. Right. Um, you know, and I think it really started from that, which is I, I came out the other side of that and I started getting on a yoga mat and I started meditating and I started looking into what mindfulness was and reading and just, absorbing almost like a sponge, everything and anything I could get my hands on. And what I started to see, you know, literally in my own life was 
um, true transformation in, in a really positive way. Um, and so, you know, from that, it was kind of like, well, she's, if, if, if these can help me, they can help anyone. Um, and, you know, I, I really believe that, um, you know, it is, you know, and I think also a little bit of, obviously now I'm on this new path of, um, clinical social work, which is very much, um, about, uh, the community as a whole, right? Social work is is all about people and groups of people um, and, and looking at them in and around their environment. Um, and so in that way, it's, you know, I, I really do kind of come from this mindset that like, to some degree, we're all connected, right? Um, we just are, um, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't even think that's really even like too yoga-y of me to say. I, I really think that we're all connected, um, you know, and, and one way that you know we as humans get through tough stuff is through connection um through sharing um through helping people um and so yeah when i when i kind of got out the other side and i started to um really focus on my recovery and see the the benefit in myself um yeah i just kind of had this uh I don't know, this moment where it, it really kind of clicked that, hey, it doesn't matter who you are, where you are, how old you are. Um, you know, we, we all have shared experience. Um, and, you know, the, the best thing that I can do um, as someone who wants to commit myself to um, these practices, but also this profession is, is, is help people. So. Yeah. And obviously there's a stigma around mental health and you being so raw and honest and open about your experience has really clearly really helped you find your passion. So was it after you got out of your um, inpatient treatment that you first embarked on this journey of sort of mindfulness or was that something you were introduced to while you were recovering? I had kind of like looked at some mindful, you know, I don't, I'd always practice yoga, um, you know, but more so out of a, just cause I knew it was good for me and kind of like that athlete mentality of like, it's just going to be something that I check off and do. Mm -hmm. Um, but no, I hadn't really like, I hadn't really done any of this. Didn't really know much about it. And, um, yeah, there was just something in me that, um, when I got out of inpatient care, I actually went back to my mom and dad's, um, for a little bit just to, um, you know, be somewhere where I wasn't alone and had family. And I don't know, I, I sat, um, I, I, I sat in their house for a few days, just like not really coherent, not really able to, I mean, gosh, you, no, no, nobody really wants to go to inpatient care. And so you sat in my pajamas for like four or five days. And then, I don't know, it was like on the sixth or seventh day, I just remember, like, I woke up one morning, like I was drinking my coffee and like, hadn't left the house yet. And something in me was just like, go to yoga. I, I have no idea where it came from. Like, it just back of my brain was like, go to yoga. I looked up like classes, you know, at studios all over Charlottesville, which is where I grew up and my parents are from. And yeah, sure enough, there was like an 11, 1130 class. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. Got dressed. Didn't, didn't even have a yoga mat. Um, just like went and I don't know that practice was just like, um, transformational in this sense of like the message and 
what I needed to hear that day. And, you know, really, I think for the first time, truly diving into this practice of connecting the breath to movement and really the mind body connection. And yeah, I just was like, okay, this is something I can do every single day and I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to dive in. And so I think through that, then it was like, okay, I think I need to start meditating. I'm gonna start meditating. So I just like downloaded Headspace and I was like, okay, I'm gonna give it a try. I mean, I couldn't even last 10 seconds um, because at that point I was still like, so in, still in my fight or flight response, I was still so in this pattern of anxiety. I just, I couldn't even like, but I stuck with it. I was just like, okay, if I can only do 10 seconds at a time, like that's what I can give, right? I'm just gonna stick with it. And that led to a minute and then three minutes. And, you know, my practice now is, um, you know, I have a morning practice and a nightly practice. Um, you know, sometimes it's, you know, that's together, they're coming to an hour or some a day. Um, you know, and I think what people don't realize when we talk about meditation, these practices that like the brain is a muscle. And so the brain picks up on what you do. Um, you know, it's just like, uh, let's just take like a standard squat, right? Everybody, every athlete knows what a squat is, right? You go in and, you know, your freshman year, you start with, I don't know, a, a hundred pound squat, right? Um, on, on the bar, right? You're doing it. You build up strength by the end of like your off season lifting program. You're probably not still at a hundred pounds, right? You, you've built up strength and it, it's the same with the brain. Um, you know, the brain, um, it's malleable, it, it changes. And so when you start to feed it more things like yoga and mindfulness and meditation, it picks up on that. And it's like, Oh, okay. Um, and so, you know, what then starts to happen is like, you really start to, um, you start to crave them. Um, and so, yeah. And I think also, you know, you, you start to see how those simple practices bleed into your day-to-day -day life. Um, and for me, it was a monumental change of being able to just watch my patterns of anxiety and see my train of thought and say, uh, okay, like I'm, this is, this is a situation where like a couple months ago, I would totally derail and spiral and I'd be on the floor and I'd be in complete panic. But like now I've got space, you know, like now I'm seeing like, okay, like I don't actually need to go there. Like I, I can actually like figure this out. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, very quickly, I mean, within a matter of uh, months, I started to see very profound changes in, um, my mental clarity, my health, um, everything, um, my outlook. And, you know, I think now coming up on four years later, um, I mean, I am a completely different person than I was, um, you know, when, when that happened and, and for the better before that incident in patient care, I, I was not doing any of these practices really. Within, uh, your answer, you talked about when you went into inpatient care, it wasn't just because you developed anxiety at that time, like at that age, it was obviously something that you had been struggling with. And, I know you focus a lot on working with the elite athlete population. So when you were a division one student athlete, did you face those struggles and what mental health resources, if any, did you have at the time at Virginia? Yes, definitely struggled. Um, uh, you know, college was, I, I was a mess in college. Um, I'll be the first to admit that. <laughs> um, you know, I think, um, you know, I think I was your stereotypical kid that like, I'm sure there were resources, but I didn't reach out. Um, you know, and I, I think 
Um, I do know since I have left, um, they have now quite a robust system, people, multiple counselors, which was not the case when I was there. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when I was doing my first master's while I was coaching at Penn, um, I was researching, my thesis was on, uh, I really wanted to research uh, mental health programming and protocol in the NCAA. Um, and I looked at the number of full-time mental health staff members, um, across division one, division two, division three levels. Um, and it was shocking. I mean, shocking. It was like maybe, maybe 10 schools had someone full-time. Wow. Um, I know that that's changed in the past few years. Um, but I think still across the board, it's, we're understaffed. Um, and I say we're because I'm becoming a mental health professional. Um, we're understaffed. Um, we don't have enough programming built out. We don't have enough support. We don't have enough money. Um, it is, again, it's, it's an afterthought, right? Um, and I, I say this all the time. I, I think, you know, schools, programs, whatever, they're all about like the gadgets and the technology that tells you if you're going to tear your ACL or not. But like, Okay. They have no, no resources, no people, no protocol, no nothing when that kid actually tears their ACL and goes into a downward spiral of losing their sport, of losing their team, of whatever it is. Right. So it's just like, it's a very like backwards mentality for me. And obviously I didn't land on this thinking right away. Right. Like, obviously I'm, you know, now pretty, like I've done the research, I'm pretty, uh, you know, established in this, but like, it's just such a backwards thing to me that like, you know, again, we're so advanced in like the physical, the technical, the tactical piece of our sport, but yet we don't have enough mental health professionals in our athletic department to service the kids that need counseling. So at Virginia, you kind of mentioned they're taking this more seriously and, you know, hiring more people, but throughout your career and you were at Penn too, have you seen these resources evolve? Yeah. And I, I would say it's, you know, um, you know, again, it's a, it's a battle of money right now, um, you know, and COVID doesn't help different schools and, and, you know, and, and even the, the research will show this when you're looking at just the break. I mean, the, the um, difference in just division one alone uh, in terms of the resources, what, what schools have and can afford is I mean, huge. Right. Um, and then let alone, like, let's not even like, touch division two and division three. Right. So it, it's like, you know, and that's when you think about it, like that's messed up. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, and, and this is like the social worker in me, right. Like we're all about systems and breaking down systems of oppression. And like, when you think about it, like this is oppression, this is a form of oppression. Um, uh, you know, we won't, we don't need to get too far into that, but, um, you know, the, the whole concept of mental health and the stigmatization behind it. And, you know, this idea of like, you know, your mental health and well-being is something to be like, you know, kept in private and nobody's going to talk about it. Right. Like that's, that's oppression. Um, and so what that has done is then bled into society, you know, on a large scale and into our structures. And one of those structures is college athletics. Um, and so, you know, it's yes. Uh, so to answer your question, like, have I seen the resources change and evolve? Sure. Um, but there's still way too much variability in terms of what we see. 
Yeah, so we definitely know, you know, there's not a lot of awareness. And I personally was a Division One athlete for a brief period of time at Lehigh University. And I had to wait a month just before I could see anybody. And that wasn't through athletics at all. Right. So just looking ahead to the future, where do you hope to see athletes' accessibility and willingness to utilize these mental health resources? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, God, it's like, well you're going to dream, dream, dream big. Right. Um, you know, I think part of the, part of the issue as well is, you know, obviously the NCAA has a, they have like a task force, which addresses issues like mental health. Um, they have what's called their like best practices manual, which is simply like an online kind of like platform slash basically just a lot of PDFs, um, of information about different mental health disorders and, um, but there's no centralized programming, right? There's no standard. Whereas like I'm pretty positive concussion protocol is something that we've moved into. That is, you know, everybody takes a baseline, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. take, like that computer baseline, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Every, I think it's like every other year we have to take it. Right. Okay. So like, look, like the, like, it's not that the NCAA isn't taking action in that way right but they they haven't I don't know if it's that they won't or they don't want to they haven't for mental health um and so what I would like to see is like let's figure it out like why why don't we like I'm sorry why why don't we why isn't this something that is you know regardless of whether you are a division one school like Duke University that's bringing in you know I don't know they're right Duke basketball like or a division three university that like nobody's ever heard of, right? Like why is mental health treated differently? So I feel like, you know, and you mentioned it before, we all know there's a stigma around mental health, but unfortunately, especially with athletes, what do you, what are some specific things you are doing to help break that? Um, well, I think the first one is I, I'm very open and I talk about uh, my own mental health journey. I mean, I'm, you know, it's, a published blog post, you know, anybody can find it. Um, you know, Google Emily Perrin and my, my story is going to come up. (laughs) Um, you know, and I think that's, um, you know, that took a lot of guts, but I, I don't, um, I don't even think twice about it anymore. I mean, it's just like, that is something from me, especially like if I'm going to commit my life to this practice, um, and, and truly be someone that is kind of trying to pave, the way in this and, you know, take it a step further and actually create programming to combat it. Like I, it starts with me. Right. So I'm very open about that. Um, you know, I also, I mean, I think my entire business and kind of how I work with athletes and what I put out on social media, you know, directly correlates to this idea of like, Hey, this is really important. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I'm pretty, I would say I'm pretty relentless about it. Um, you know, I'm not afraid to, um, not afraid to speak up about it. Um, I'm not afraid to get a little bit uncomfortable. Um, and you know, I think my, my programming, my mindfulness programming in particular is really centered around giving people, athletes, coaches, the skills and the tools to be able to work with and manage their minds and emotions. What's one piece of advice you would give to someone struggling to reach out for help? 
Oh man. Um, yeah. I mean the, the isolation piece of things right now is real. Um, I mean, we're literally dealing with something that no one has ever seen before. And I think my message is what you're going through is valid. I think so much of the time, those of us that struggle with mental health issues, um, it's almost like a, you're almost living two deaths in, in my opinion, right? You're living the death of the, the mental health battle, but then you're living the second death of feeling constantly like, well, this isn't valid, right? It's not so bad. Uh, it's not as bad as somebody else. Um, what I'm feeling doesn't matter. Um, you know, right. We, we do this constant question, um, and kind of inner critic thing where we just kind of pick at ourselves for feeling what we're feeling. Um, and so I think my message is that like, it's valid and everything you feel is valid. So then how have you encouraged your athletes to take mindfulness and their mental health more seriously? Yeah. I, <laughs> I have to chuckle that one. Cause my, my, the athletes that I do work with are probably like, she's a freaking broken record, but you know, I, I equate it to this. Right. And I work, um, closely with, um, Duke baseball. Um, and you know, baseball is a very, like, although it's a team sport, it's also a very individual sport, right. Um, pitching, batting, um, you know, and I, and, and it's a very like repetitive sport, meaning, um, you know, gosh, I, I usually ask those guys like, well, how many times, like, let's take a batter, for example, how many times do you think you've, you've gotten your bat and you've, you've hit balls, right. Over and over and over. Right. Um, it is the same thing with your brain. Um, you know, you have to be willing to commit to the process of repetition and growth and training. Right. It is. And, and I think, excuse me, this is where like that kind of like sport mentality comes in. And, you know, when I was doing my, uh, meditation teacher training, I, I trained with, um, a guy that was a former Buddhist monk and he came out of the monastery to teach teachers. Um, but he's done some work with the golden state warriors. Um, my thing was, you know, I, I think these old Eastern Buddhist and Hindu traditions of mindfulness and yoga and all that they're, they're beautiful. Right. Um, but there's also this element of having to, especially in the space that I move, having to connect it to the 21st century athlete. Okay. And so how do we do that? Well, um, you know, you do that by, uh, you know, essentially what we're doing is we are training your brain, right? So just like, okay, you probably have a hitting regimen, right? You probably hit X amount uh, on, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, you probably do some more live game stuff on, um, you know, what did I say? Tuesday, Friday, whatever it is. Okay. Um, you know, that stuff is so, and especially at the college game, it's so regimented. Um, it has to be the same with your brain. Um, and so, you know, with my athletes, I am just like kind of this constant pest, um, in the back of their brains of like, you've got to commit, you've got to commit. It's gotta be something that you do every single day. Maybe it's multiple times a day. Um, you know, th there, there is not probably, you know, if you're looking at the best baseball players in the college game, okay. There's probably not many days that go by that they don't pick up a bat or don't pick up a ball to pitch. Okay you know, I say you have to attack 
the training of your brain the exact same way. Mm-hmm. But how do you think improving your overall mental wellness can improve your performance on the field court or even just in your daily life? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, it is that I, my thing is like, you know, you sit and you practice like each, it, it is literally the equivalent of like just your everyday generic training session or practice, right? Like you don't practice, you know, every single day, um, to hold on. How do I want to say this? You know, we, we practice, okay. As much as we do as athletes so that when the time comes in those pressure moments, right. In those buzzer beater, like quintessential, like, you know, moments we are prepared. Okay. And that is essentially what this does. Okay. It prepares us for, you know, when shit hits the fan in your family. Okay. All of a sudden you wake up and your parents who've been married for 30 years are now getting divorced. It prepares you for when you become a new parent. Okay. And your baby is screaming and doesn't let you sleep. It prepares you for, you know, that high pressure, um, you know, game that is now in overtime and we're still tied zero, zero. And we're, we, we all know we're going into penalty kicks, right? What it does is it builds a foundation of your, in your brain. Okay to just be more durable and, and withstand the adversity and the kind of pressures of what life, whatever your life looks like throws at you. Yeah. So building off of that, how can say someone who has never uh, practiced mindfulness, how can they get started in yoga, mindfulness or meditation? And then stay consistent um, when trying these new practices, because that is, I think, a big challenge of trying something new is just staying consistent and staying at it. So what advice would you give? Yeah, it's a great, great question. Um, You know, I think the first thing is like, start somewhere. (laughs) You know, I think there's so much information and just so much out there that like, sometimes people get so overwhelmed that then they just don't start, right? Um, You know, pick one thing and go with it. Like maybe you're just going to like do a yoga class a week and that's where you start. Maybe you're going to download an app like Headspace and you're just going to do one thing a day, right? Like get started somewhere. Um, you know, what I will say is you have to, okay. Oftentimes what we do as humans, when we want to make change or we want to pick up something or start something new is we, we end up like, devising these plans that just like are never going to work for us and our lives. And then basically what we're doing is we're setting ourselves up for failure, right? Like how many times have you done this? Like I I've done this a million times to be like, I'm going to start doing this. And then like two weeks later, you're like, Oh yeah, I forgot. (laughs) Right. Like, so what I say, um, specifically when you're talking about a mindfulness practice or meditation, right? They're not the same thing. So mindfulness is a, a quality, a, a thing you can be, right? You can be mindful, but you can also practice mindfulness. It is something that we can develop in the brain. Um, and there's many ways to do that. Meditation is one of those ways. Um, meditation is kind of the more formal or a formal practice of mindfulness. Okay. Um, you know, what I say is like, start small, right? So many people equate this, this picture in their head of like, meditation being like, okay, I've got to go sit on the floor, cross-legged, eyes closed, can't move, 
incense going lights off. Okay. For 20 minutes. And you're like, nobody would like, I would never ask my athletes to do that. Like never in a million years. Okay. So then what's going to happen is you're, you're going to go do that. You're not going to make it. You're going to get frustrated and you're not going to go back and do it again. So don't do it. Don't even start there. Right. Okay. Put one minute. Okay. Everybody has one of these, right? Everybody has a smartphone. You can set your, your timer on your phone for one minute. Set your timer for one minute. If you want to close your eyes, awesome. Just be with yourself for one minute. Don't look at the phone. Don't look at the computer. Don't look around or anything else. Just be with yourself for one minute. That one minute timer goes off. Cool. I'm done. I got to do it tomorrow though. Get started, get started somewhere and get started with like the minimal thing you think you can do, right? There's no expectation, right? And my thing is always like, everyone can do one minute. Everyone can do one minute. Okay. Take one minute from your Instagram scrolling, take one minute from Snapchat, take one minute from like watching Netflix. You can take one minute, do one minute a day for one week and see how you're doing and then go to two minutes. Okay. So that's, that's my kind of like go-to of getting started. That's, I think that's really good advice. And I'm sure, um, like you said, you've given different, you know, routines or offer different routines to different people and different tips to different people. And I'm sure that there's a lot that you could say for this um, last question here, but with everything that you have accomplished, is there something that stands out as perhaps the most rewarding or, you know, something that is just so gratifying or maybe a favorite, um, you know, moment that you've had? Yeah. Um, I would definitely say that, um, my, so, you know, the other piece of this is like, there's many, um, types of meditation, right? So there's concentration meditation, there's mindfulness meditation, there's, uh, meta meditation, which is like a loving kindness meditation. Um, I would say that, um, probably, um, I have done a lot of work on um, a self-compassion um, and a forgiveness practice. Um, forgiveness of others, forgiveness of self um, and self-love. Um, and I, I think um, those two practices and, you know, I'll be perfectly honest, like the, um, the self-compassion and forgiveness is something I'm, I've actually, um, done a lot of, but I kind of sometimes in rotation of my own personal practices, I shift around. Um, I've actually just come back to, uh, my forgiveness and self compassion practice. And I think it's, um, something that has, um, forever changed me. Um, and I think is something that is so needed um, in our world, um, you know, a, a self, um, a self-compassion practice is about, um, giving yourself the kindness, the love, um, the friendship, um, you know, that you deserve. Um, and this is something that if you are a human and you're living on this earth, you deserve. Um, even if you are the worst person in the world, um, you know, I truly believe that all beings, um, deserve love. That is our given right. The moment that we breathe our first breath. Um, and that is something that for the longest time I have just been 
really deprived of. Um, and I think is the root and the cause of a lot of, um, my anxiety, um, and my, my panic. Um, and so I would say that practice in particular is something that, you know, obviously I continue to work on and I think I always will. And I think that's a good thing. Um, you know, I think that's something that everyone should be doing regularly. Um, but I think that, um, practice is one that is very, challenging, but also very near and dear to my heart. Um, you know, I think that is, um, you know, there's a lot of meditation teachers out there that, um, teach on this and are experts on it. I am not one of them. Um, I was trained more in, a, um, more of a mindfulness and a concentration practice. Um, and so I have a lot of respect for, um, self-compassion teachers, um, and, and compassion teachers because it's hard. Um, it's not easy. Many people are uncomfortable with it, myself included. Um, and so that is probably, um, you know, has been the most profound, um, change in my life. Yeah, that was an amazing answer. And again, we can't thank you enough for being really honest and open with us today about your experiences. Um, obviously mental health is a tough thing to talk about. Um, but that being said, sort of flipping the page a little bit, we have one section, last section that we like to finish off with. Yeah. It's called um, rapid fire. So oh, just yeah. to finish things up on a bit more of a happy note, um, <laughs> we each will ask you one question. And ideally the first answer that comes to mind is what you should say. Yes, so got it. I'll start. So if you could have dinner with any athlete, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh, Serena Williams. Uh, I mean, one, my perspective, like I have to go with a woman, right? Like have to. Um, and two, she is just like the uh, epitome of a badass um, and just like hundred percent Serena Williams. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> it's literally so cool. Like, Badass, just so cool. I'm obsessed with her. Um, and then if you could attend any sporting event from, you know, past, you know, whatever point in history, present, what would that be? And again, why? Oh, you know, um, I really love to watch tennis. And so I think it, it's always been a dream of mine to uh, go to the U.S. Open. Um so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I played tennis as a, as a kid, not like competitively or anything, but like it just the fast pace, um, the back and forth, like, I just, I love it. High energy, uh, good atmosphere. I, I would love to, um, I mean, potentially Wimbledon too would be awesome, but like, I just picked the U S open cause it's in the U S but, um, yeah, uh, some form of that. So then what was your most embarrassing moment playing sports as a child? God, um, <laughs> you know, honestly, um, we, I, this was in high school and, uh, we had just won, it was for my high school team. We had just won the, I think the semifinals going into the state championship and we'd come from behind and I had scored the game winning goal and, uh, we're coming off the field and it's on a field with a track around it. And I didn't realize that, like, you know how some of the, the tracks have, like, 
that little, little transition bar. I mean, like it just barely comes out of the ground as you go into the grass. I had no idea it was there. And I had like my bag on, I was like running off the bench to like go on my mom or my dad. And I just like toe into that beam completely. I mean, just like the movies, like fell flat on my face. My bag flipped over my head. Like it was terrible. And like, not to mention like the entire crowd saw like the I was running towards the crowd like you like there was no hiding they're like hey um, there's that girl that scored the game oh Oh, she fell on her face (laughs) flipped up and like kept running I was like I don't even know what to do like I don't even know what happened like and my mom like I'm pretty positive I got to my mom she was like are you okay um yeah that was 100% probably the most Oh Hopefully gosh. it was more of an ego bruise than a physical bruise. Yeah, no, no, no physical damage was done. Um, but a hundred percent I looked like <laughs> this. So yeah. Oh my gosh, that's too funny. Well, yeah. that's everything we have for today. So awesome. thank you so much for yes. joining us, Emily. And for those listening, thank you for tuning in to episode six of Everything But the Ball. And we really hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back every other Wednesday with a different guest. So be sure to subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, and give us five stars and thumbs up. To stay even more in the loop on all of our episodes and guests, follow us on Instagram at everythingbuttheball and on Twitter at ebtb underscore pod. Thanks again for hanging out with us today and we'll see you in episode seven.